Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for listening to the Equity Is podcast series by Equity Labs at the University of Denver. My name is Ashley Hill. I'm the Assistant Director at Equity Labs. Our show is committed to interrogating contemporary issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion across disciplines, industries, and contexts by leaning on the expertise of interdisciplinary thought leaders and elevating the voices of those who live in the margins. Today, we tackle the harsh reality that our systems are not broken, but working exactly as they were designed. We engineer our systems and processes. What better place to start the conversation about the systems we engineer than with STEM education subject matter experts. Our goal at the end of each episode is that you walk away with a better understanding of contemporary issues, some skills and strategies that aid you in your equity and justice journey, and a sense of belonging in a community of people who are in this together. I would like to start by introducing our guests for today's episode. Thank you all for being here for our second episode. We're really excited to have you, and I will introduce each of them in turn. So we are joined by Professor Shayla Sawyer. Shayla Sawyer is a professor in the Electrical, Computer, and Systems Engineering Department at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Her nanobio optoelectronics research program expands the fundamental understanding, engineering processes, and potential applications of hybrid inorganic slash organic materials for optoelectronic devices and sensors. This includes the fabrication of nanomaterials from bacteria, fabrication in a solution process, and the development of sensors and complementary systems. The nanobio devices are comprised of hybrid inorganic slash organic materials, what may include semiconductor metal oxide nanostructures, bacteria, conductive polymers, conductive nanostructures, and biochemical solutions. Her overall research goal is aimed at effectively fabricating and characterizing novel materials and sensors with consideration of systems that require sensitivity and or selectivity to bring quantitative measurements in typically qualitative worlds. Professor Sawyer is a highly regarded teacher for her unorthodox teaching style. Her classroom innovations have led to leadership across the university for methods that optimize remote teaching during the pandemic. For her work in her most recent course, Electric Circuits, she has received all three of the highest teaching awards at RPI, including the Trustees Outstanding Teacher Award in 2020. Her Omega Design Labs are an open opportunity to design solutions for the NAE Grand Challenges or UN Sustainability Goals while aligning them with fundamental concepts in the course. Professor Sawyer obtained her PhD in Electrical Engineering from Winslayer Polytechnic Institute. As a graduate student, she received the Competitive Department of Homeland Security Fellowship. She completed her undergraduate studies with electrical engineering degree from Hampton University as a merit scholar, honors college member, and two-time MEAC champion basketball player. During her four years at Hampton, she received the Female Student Athlete of the Year Award, meaning having the highest GPA, every year. She has obtained industry experience throughout her education, but most recently with GE Global Research in Niskayuna, New York, and National Security Technologies Laboratory in Santa Barbara, California. She is married to Christopher Armand and has two sons, Christopher Aaron and Simon Adain. Dang, that's amazing. Thank you for being here, Shayla. We are so happy to have you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Our next guest is Dr. Courtney Nye. 
Dr. Courtney Nye is the Associate Director of the Office of Undergraduate Research and Artistry at Colorado State University, where she manages a lab program supporting underrepresented students in STEM. Courtney's current research focuses on understanding and supporting organizational change in higher education, and she's the first author on the book Facilitating Change in Higher Education, the Departmental Action Team Model. She's facilitated many teams working on the change efforts in higher education, including departmental action teams and online learning communities for the American Physical Society's Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity Alliance. She recently received a career award from the National Science Foundation to study the culture of chemistry. Courtney also provides consulting services related to facilitating organizational change in higher education. Also, dang, thanks for being here, Courtney. Thank you for having me. Yes. Wonderful. And our final guest is Dr. Stephanie Salomon. Stephanie Salomon earned her PhD in mathematics from UCLA in 2005, her MA in mathematics from Boston College in 1999, and a BA in mathematics from the University of Michigan in 1997. She joined the faculty at the University of Portland in 2005 and currently serves as professor of mathematics, director of the STEM Education and Outreach Center, and faculty athletic representative. During her 2020-2021 academic year sabbatical, she worked for the Portland Metro STEM Partnership, one of 13 STEM hubs in Oregon, focusing on creating equity and student identity-centered professional development for K to fifth grade math teachers. She is an associate director of Project Next, a national professional and networking program for new higher education mathematics faculty. She was the PI on the NSF Reflect program, advancing the use of evidence-based practices in STEM teaching at UP and the use of peer observation for formative assessment of teaching. And she was, she has managed, excuse me, a combined $1.6 million as the PI on a sub-award of the Western Regional Noise Alliance grant and as PI of the NSF Noise Scholars and Interns program at UP. She is on the board of directors for Saturday Academy, a local 501c3 whose mission is to engage children in hands-on STEM learning. She was an IBL faculty facilitator with the NSF product grant. Dr. Salomon is the recipient of UP's 2009 Outstanding Teaching Award, the 2019 Oregon Academy of Sciences Outstanding Educator and STEM Higher Education Award, and UP's 2022 Outstanding Faculty Service Award. She is a wife and a mother of three young boys who keep her busy whenever she's not working. Triple dang, thank you for being here, Stephanie. So nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, we're so happy to have you all. Thank you so much for being here again. There will be a lot of gratitude expressed throughout the podcast chat today. Um, And just to focus us before we hop into questions, um, and actually before we even do that, just want to honor that there, uh, there's a lot happening around us. There's always a lot happening around us, but the last few months have felt particularly, uh, as Trindu calls the summer of discontent. So I just want to honor that however you're arriving today is more than enough for us. Um, and whatever you bring to this conversation is, is the right thing. It's the right people in the right room. So thank you for, for bringing yourselves to this space. So today we're talking about the idea of equity in the sciences and in systems engineering and how we might engineer 
more equitable scientific practices, methodologies, and find supportive communities. So our conversation will be led by this theme, and it's a conversation. So we're really thrilled to hear um, not only about your professional experiences, but also however much you'd like to share about your personal experiences since we show up as who we are in almost all of those spaces. So as we start, please do share what salient identities you carry that are informing the way you enter our conversation today. Um, so for example, my name is Ashley, I use she, her pronouns, um, and I am a white cisgender woman, middle-class, heterosexual, neurotypical, and able-bodied. And this informs um, how I grew up, how I understood the sciences as a student, um, and how I show up today. So our first question is going to talk about science as a gigantic umbrella. And I know the three of you operate um, in very different practices using different methodologies and different approaches. But when I think about science, right, the way that I was taught is that science relies on sort of the idea of classifiable information, the ability to be objective. And when it comes to methodology, the ability to replicate something that you're doing, right? So I'm curious uh, what you all think. So with that idea of science, does that mean it's inherently at odds with equity? And I will invite Shayla to start us off. No. Okay, there's more to it. <laughs> but no is good. Yes, um, no is serious, I guess. Here's why, and I'll say it briefly. I think we have to define what science is and maybe define what engineering is, if you want to go that far. Simply, I'll say, when I tell my five-year-old and eight-year-old, what is a scientist or what is an engineer? I tell my five-year-old and eight-year-old, a scientist asks questions. An engineer solves problems. That's it. So for me, science is a tool. Engineering is a tool, a methodology to kind of clarify this part of my humanity that needs to, to understand. It's a part of my intellectual curiosity, so to speak. And I use these tools. And maybe it could be other things more than a tool. It could be the results. It could be various things. But it's the intellectual curiosity is the thing that's part of my humanity. Science is somehow like an enabler. And so is engineering, so to speak. Um, but I see uh, equity is something that relates to community, that it relates to something that feeds another part of my humanity. And so... Um, I, I really, really believe that we need to start looking at more than just science, of course, but I don't think that they're at odds. I think it's embedded. Science is embedded in my human experience, so to speak, right? But there's other parts of my human experience that need to be addressed so that my humanity doesn't interfere with what is happening, what I need to understand. So that's my no. I see them at different planes, so to speak if that makes some sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. No, I, I really hear that and appreciate um, you taking a second to divine what science and engineering mean to you. And I'm really happy to hear that other people explain science that way. Because when I was a classroom teacher, I'd always ask students, do you like to ask questions? And they'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, Rad, you're a scientist. Let's go forth and do. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for sharing, Shayla. Courtney, would you like to go next? Yeah, you know, and 
as Shayla was saying that we need to redefine science, um, that really resonates with me. And when I was when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about the ability to be objective in science and how we often use that as part of the scientific process, right? And I and I went on a bit of a, a rabbit hole thinking about well, how do we define objectivity? And should we be questioning what it means to be objective, right? And this is coming from my background as a chemistry education researcher. And I think that there were a lot of biases against whether or not chemistry education research counts as science compared to what people might call the pure chemistry or the pure sciences. And I would argue, you know, based on Shayla's definition, based on my own experiences, that, you know, the research that I was doing within the context of chemistry education really is science and it's asking questions um, and looking for answers and exploring and gaining knowledge. And um, but then this this tension about objectivity comes up. Right. And so I think that we need to also interrogate what does it mean to be objective and does that belong? Is that the only way that we define what science is in the practice of science? Um, and thinking about expanding our definition of what it means to be objective, um, because I would argue that, you know, in my own research, qualitative research and in other types of scientific research, there are many ways to practice objectivity, right? Or contextualizing is, is what I would like to think of it more. And, and acknowledging, as we are starting to do more and more of our own backgrounds, experiences, the lenses that we are applying as we are doing science, right? And recognizing that that is one way to practice, maybe not necessarily being objective as a state, but like achieving some level of objectivity in the sense that others can understand how you're arriving at the conclusions you're coming to, right? Um, and so this is this is what I've been thinking about when it comes to what is science and what is equity and thinking about, you know, um, how we can interrogate these, these concepts so that we can create new conditions that are more equitable in by interrogating these constructs. Thank you, Courtney. Um, I really resonate with that that tension of objectivity um, and where that lands, and you know what folks' responsibility or not right is to expand the definition or um, to maintain an objective view. Which I don't think we arrive in any space fully objective. I don't think neutrality really exists. Like we don't arrive apolitically or ahistorically um, in spaces, and that informs how we do science too. So, thank you, uh, Stephanie. Would you like to share now? Yeah, so I'm also an I'm also a no, um, like Sheila. I think this was um, I don't see um, science or engineering or mathematics at odds with equity or the objectivity. Um, I think in addition to defining science, defining engineering, and I would say defining mathematics, we also have to define what we mean by equity and sort of take a step back and decide what that means for us and as scientists how do we measure how well we're doing with regard to equity um so i actually see the the process of attempting to center and achieve equity um as really being a scientific problem um i'm a, a proponent of and, a, and an educator in a liberal arts um 
in, in a in a school that has a liberal arts core. And so I very much want the humanity of my scientists to get in the way of them doing science and engineering in the sense that I want them to be thoughtful about how their work might impact the human condition um, and how culture and the culture of people that we're trying to serve by creating solutions, how their cultures can be impacted and how their cultures can play into the solutions themselves. Mathematics is often seen as sort of identity neutral. And as a, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual woman, I can say that um, I have majoritized identities all but one, and that is my gender. Um, and that mathematics is not identity neutral, even with only one social identity that is minoritized in the field. People with intersectional identities are not served in the same way by the system of mathematics that we've been set up and that we address throughout a child's education and throughout higher education and then throughout the training and hiring and um, support of faculty. And so this is a system-wide problem. But if we can agree, and I hope we can, that as scientists, we're meant to improve the human condition, to um, remark on the fact that we live in a bruised and broken world and that we can be part of the solution, then we need to be part of the solution for everyone. And that means asking some really hard questions to which we might not be comfortable with the answers and then moving forward. And so I really look at science and, and the work of science and, and, and Courtney, we have the same discussions in mathematics is math education, mathematics. Sure, because we won't have people to do mathematics if we don't have people studying how we teach mathematics. And so how do we prepare ourselves and everyone who's following us to better serve humanity? Can I just hint on the, the really, yes, I love what you said. If we talk about how do we kind of contextualize equity in our education, et cetera, I think the problem is our problems in education are too small. So if you're trying to learn the fundamentals, typically you break a problem really far down and say, solve this differential equation, right? It's a small problem with a defined end. It requires no equity at all, almost, to solve a small problem. As the problems get complex, like trying to solve humanity's problems, now, your human condition will affect how you implement it, how you question it. So science is just a tool, but once it gets bigger than the tool, now we're all in it, right? Our humanity is all in it. Um, and so if we ask small questions, eh, and everybody's competing on the smallness of the question about how right it is, but the real, real questions we need to solve today are huge and complex. So are we accurately or correctly preparing the next generation by using small questions for big problems? And once you change the context, once you change the context, I think it gets very, very interesting. Now people want better questions and want better implementation, implementation because otherwise your solution, your, your answer doesn't actually answer what you thought it would. So changing the context of making things bigger, 
aligns with a lot of things actually, not just equity, but a lot of other stuff that came out during the pandemic, I think. And that would be another part of the question, right? So Stephanie, you hit it on the head. I think it's big. Go big or go home when it comes to equity. Thank you all. This is already like my wheels are spinning. I am, yeah, wonderful. Thank you all. So I love what you said, Sheila, about small questions for big problems. Um, and so I'm I'm thinking about, are the questions that I'm asking today small questions for big problems? But we're going to roll with it. <laughs> I just love, I like that framing a lot. So our next question in the spirit of hopefully a big question for a big problem is in your own discipline and area of areas of practice, how present is the conversation on equity? So this is, this surprises people, but I think the most common answer to mathematics questions, and it is by far the least satisfying answer, but it depends. And I think it's the same answer to this question. So how present is the conversation on equity depends very much on who's in the room and who's having the conversation. And if we think about, right, there's a a large contingent of people who use um, the argument that two plus two is four, no matter what, there's no identity politics in mathematics. You can't really think about it that way. There is still significant pushback to equity talk in mathematics because it's seen as this bastion of objectivity, right? But in fact, it cannot be. And so there are folks, um, researchers like Rochelle Gutierrez and Julia Aguirre in Math Math Ed and Pamela Harris in Mathematics, who have been addressing issues of equity for a long time. And I think what's important to note, those people are women of color. And so when you talk about the maturity of the audience or the maturity of the discussion, you're really talking about the identities of the people having the discussion. And as someone who's not a woman of color, my feeling is it's time to give those folks a break. It's time for them to rest and for others of us to start really leading these conversations. Because I think one of the things that Shayla said before we started recording was like, they expect me to be a good teacher, right? They expect me to be digging into equity. And that's true. And so, but what is the impact of that expectation on people with intersectional identities, on their ability to do the rest of their work. So in terms of my own work, right, I I don't feel like I'm an equity expert. I actually don't feel like I ever will be an equity expert um, because I see that as as equity is not a location, right? It's not an endpoint. It's very much a starting point, a continuing conversation point. And so in my own work, attending to it for my own practice and then urging others to think about it, right? And to try to engage with it. As I, as I mentioned, a lot of my research now is on institutional change and where people fall on an adoption spectrum when it comes to equity or instructional practice change or peer observation, where do people fall and how do we meet them where they are and then move them along that spectrum so that they can become equity practitioners. Um, And I find myself deeply influenced by the people who, uh, particularly people of color who have come before me, who have really created um, the language and have created the possibility for the rest of us to pick up this work and really run with it. 
but I feel like in general, mathematics is far behind the other sciences, but that might just be because I don't know as well <laughs> the situation in other sciences. Thanks, Stephanie. Courtney, would you like to share? Yeah, I would love to. Stephanie, when you said uh, you will never be an expert in equity, right? I think I feel the same way. And I think that this is something that's really hard for people to grasp, um, is that it's an ever continuing journey and something that must be practiced daily all of the time in all aspects of work. It's not just an add-on. And I think in the work that I am doing with different departments and some of the research that I'm conducting on groups that are trying to make change in their departments, in their disciplines, at their institutions, you know, there's this sense of feeling stuck in that initial conversation phase and not having, not feeling like they have the skills or expertise to move beyond that initial conversation. And, you know, I, and I wonder just, just in this conversation, thinking about, you know, this notion of being an expert and whatnot, I know in academia, right, we are trained to be experts in our field, right? And this is a thing that we're always working towards and whatnot, but we've never considered, you know, that we need, we're practicing for that every day, right? We're constantly working on developing our own knowledge and understanding um, and that we need to apply. We have all of the tools and all of the behaviors that we need to also, you know, practice equity in wherever, whatever our contexts are, but we just haven't shifted our mindset to, to want to accommodate that, right, in our daily practice. So it shouldn't be, I am an expert in chemistry, or I am an expert in equity. It should be, I am working on becoming an expert in both because I am practicing both daily. And yeah, I think it's, it's interesting thinking about like this mindset shift that might need to happen um, in order to really move beyond those initial conversations into greater transformation and into actual real change in conditions. Thanks, Courtney. Shayla, you had something you'd like to add as well? Really quick. We were shoved into equitable conversations without ever really fully using the word when the pandemic happened. That's it. I mean, I can elaborate, but we do not have time. So that conversation has been fascinating because we talk about it now. We definitely talk about it now. And one definition of equity is access that has been constantly brought up. And the results of the pandemic has had some statements from uh, colleagues that really blew my mind that addressed directly equity without really making a sticker. It wasn't a sticker. It was a conversation about what happened. And now there's a whole shift in how people look at assessment and stuff like that. So there was a little Trojan horse thing that happened because of the pandemic and I'm here for it. That's great framing for the next question and I'll, I'll let you lead us off on the next question if that's okay with you. Um, but I, I will share, so not to take up too much space, but I did classroom teaching online for a little while during the pandemic. And I remember one of the biggest things that our team talked about was cameras on or cameras off. And that, blew my mind in conversation with our team because we were like, we don't care. The kids can do whatever they want, right? Like if they don't want to listen, fine. If they need to take a breath or go to the bathroom, they get to be a human, right? This humanity thread that you all have so intentionally woven through this conversation so far, 
shows up with kindergartners and sixth graders and 12th graders and the 45-year-olds that I taught online, right? And so that became one of those places where I was surprised too to hear some teachers at the top of the class obligate every single student to turn on their camera and they wouldn't start class until we were, until all the cameras were on. And it was it broke my heart because I was like these students are experiencing something as young people, as very young people that they've never been through and to shove an expectation on them. It yes, anyway, I just wanted to say I heard what you said and I had an example to share about working with young folks and an elementary school especially that was surprising to me. So with this framing of especially this, I like this idea of the Trojan horse during the pandemic that pushed a lot of folks into conversations about equity. Where do we think this conversation should be? You know, Shayla, if you want to start us off in your fields, where where are we headed? Where should this be? You know, obviously we're <laughs> making our way, but I'd love to hear more about what you think. Oh, I'm in the middle of a proposal. So I'm not going to, Courtney, I need you. I'm not going to rehash, but here we go. I will be short. There's a teaching aspect and a, and, a, and a research aspect. I could give one example of how the pandemic shifted thought. And again, it goes back to making the problems bigger and what that kind of chain of reaction happened. Okay, so for example, academic integrity was like a huge thing. Academic integrity is huge. Most professors did not know, I wouldn't say most, a good portion of professors didn't know how much knowledge and information was out there for small problems. Like you could go find any solution anywhere. And it's, it's like, I think we all caught up really quick with the speed and the access and the cheapness of knowledge. I think academia, as far as education is concerned, was stuck on certifying whether you know or have knowledge or not. And so you're testing, do you have this knowledge? You're doing homework, do you have this knowledge? And the internet has blasted that way into the future. It's not just about knowledge now, is it? It is now about critical thinking. It is now about application. It's now about proving, right? And so what happened, the, the discussions that we were starting to have about just assessment, just integrity, fascinating stuff came out like, when I give my exams, and I provided all of the resources on my website to make sure every student, we had to make sure every student had the lecture and had the notes, my exam grades all raised. So the question was, and it came out of a colleague's mouth, so for the past 30 years, what have I been evaluating? Was I evaluating access or was I evaluating learning? And I almost cried when I heard that because it's like, yes, like, yes, there are a million things around the system of science, around the system of engineering that is making an unequal balance for performance, a million things. And somebody figured out one of them. And one of them is people have different schedules. People have different learning abilities. People have different time scales. So are we judging, are we actually measuring learning? Or are we measuring the fact that some students have a backlog of back exams, they're maybe in a fraternity or sorority, and they have access to lots of help, and they have all the time in the world, versus a student that's working three jobs, just got on campus, first generation, right? Understand? That's an equity question, and the word equity was never brought up. But they understood that, and everybody was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's a thing. 
You see what I mean? The pandemic opened that. So while you see like, oh, there's all this negative maybe stuff that happened with equity, I heard a lot of interesting, very important conversations that hit the heart of equity just because we had the issue of how do we really truly educate when we can't all be on campus? And there's like a million different versions of that that has happened and I'm really happy to have. Question is, how long will it last? And that's just on the teaching aspect and just assessment. So that is the question to me. So I think one of the things that the pandemic did, just to jump on that, Shayla, because I 100% agree with you and saw the same things happening, both within my own institution and within the network of people I work with, um, we started asking questions about what's important to us? What's in, If we had to set a goal or if we asked students, what are their goals? Better yet, what do they want to get out of this? How are we measuring those things? Right. If we say we want our students to gain confidence in problem solving, where do we where do we track that? How, what's our metric on that? Or if integrity is important to us, how are we measuring that? Are we just checking that they're not cheating? Because that doesn't seem that seems like a rigged system. So what I see and in my own practice and in my colleagues practice, what I see changing and I actually I'm hopeful that it will stick around is this shift to proficiency grading, which allows students to have multiple opportunities that we can also think about what's important to us. So if we say we want to create an equitable classroom community where inclusion is part of our expectation for our students, how do like we can't just say that's valuable without actually valuing it in a way that's meaningful to our students. Right. And so how do we set up learning objectives? How do we set up systems so that students know what we value? Because that's what we're measuring. Right. And so in a mathematics class, I deeply value communication. And one of the ways, especially when I'm dealing with students who say I'm not really a math person, think, well, what's important to you? Is communication important to you? And then how can we leverage your skills in communication to help you be successful in mathematics? So there's so many paths that success here. It's not just the one. The system has been set up to help students believe that there's one way to be successful, and that's to do calculations accurately and quickly. And that's it. But that's not mathematics, right? And that's, that's not important to me because they have a calculator. I'm not interested in that. So how do we change the things that we assess so that they align with the things that we value? I appreciate where y'all are headed. What I what I think I hear, if I can be a student and repeat back what I've heard um, around the idea of redefining success for students and for learners, um, redefining, you know, as we started, what's the definition of science, what's the definition of equity, thinking about redefining those and some things that are coming through loud and clear are what are we measuring, right? Is it access? Is it learning? And I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront of the conversation, Shayla, because I think that that like feels like sort of the question. <laughs> and having been a student not so long ago, um, I was really like jarred when my professors told me to evaluate myself. They were like, it's, this is your gig, right? Like you get to decide how well you've done. You get in what you, you know, what you get out. It's very, it's a very like sort of common phrase, but as a student, I was very like in the box 
Like I'm not successful unless I get an A. And if I don't get an A, everything is horrible and it's the end of the world, right? And that's in the container in which I'm in, which I'm aware um, informed that as well. But that idea of access to resources and the idea of asking and making connections with students about who they are and how that can be an inroad into something they previously believed they couldn't be a part of or a community that they felt excluded from. Um, feels like a shift in science, feels like this sort of paradigmatic shift in a different direction that you all are are piloting and 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 representing. I really love this idea of like intersectional mothering <laughs> that's not necessarily gendered, but I think a lot about that and how sort of birthing this process or bringing this into the world is it's an incredible, painful, fiery process. Um, and I, I love what you all have said about that. So when we think about these systems, um, I'm curious, again, we started talking a little bit about how these scientific methodology systems or scientific communities practices are sort of working as they were originally designed, right, with um, often a very white Eurocentric view founded in imperialism and that that still informs some of what happens in science or a lot of what happens in science. And so I'm curious if you all can describe or give more examples about how we intervene in these systems that are functioning as they were designed. Stephanie earlier used the word leverage, um, which when we think about Danella Meadows is a, a systems thinker writer and talks about leverage points in systems and where can you intervene and calling those sort of power points. Yes, yeah, so would anyone, Courtney, would you like to start us off? You said that you had something that you wanted to share. So in my role in the Office of Undergraduate Research and Artistry, which I will hereby refer to as Aura because that's way shorter, um, one of the programs that I manage is the Aura Lab, where we are giving students an opportunity to come into a lab space, learn some lab skills, and then practice doing research, right? And the reason that we are trying to provide this opportunity to students is that we recognize that engaging in research is not like being in a normal traditional classroom and that the skills that you practice and learn when you are conducting research are extremely important, but there are not many opportunities in higher education to engage in research and that access to research is often extremely exclusive and typically reserved for you know, those who are at maybe the top of their class or who have special connections and that access to research opportunities, particularly as an undergraduate student, are not widely available, right? And then when students are exposed perhaps to these opportunities, they might self-select out of them because Engaging in research, as I mentioned, is so different from what it's like to be a, a, in a typical classroom that students may think, I can't do this. You know, this is not meant for me. I don't know how to do this. I've never been taught how to do this. So in the Aura Lab, um, you know, hearkening back to what Stephanie and Shayla were talking about with changing assessment practices and changing what we value or you know, assessing what we value and changing those sorts of practices. In the Aura Lab, we actually don't do any external assessment at all of the students. And we do ask them to practice self-assessment. And, you know, Ashley, as you were mention mentioning, that's a very daunting process, right? Because you, you don't typically have to self-assess yourself, self-assess and determine, you know, how am I doing in terms of my progress 
for whatever I'm working on. And so in this case, it's, it's there, we're asking them to evaluate their own research skills. Um, and in doing so, hopefully build their self-efficacy and confidence in performing research practices, which are extremely valued after graduation. So research skills, you know, problem solving, critical thinking, communication skills, these are all extremely valuable when you enter the workforce, yet we're not providing necessarily many opportunities for students to practice this and demonstrating that we value that and then giving the opportunity to try it and, and to gain those skills before they leave you know, their, their undergraduate experience. And so in the oral lab, we're really trying to provide those opportunities to combat that inequity in terms of access to research and to give them a space. You know, I tell students as they're entering the lab, um, I often tell them, I want you to fail. <laughs> I want you to make mistakes. I want you to mess up because you're going to do that. If you ever go into research, you are going to mess up a lot and that's okay, right? Let's practice messing up. And then what happens after you mess up? That's the important part, right? Like I mess up all the time. So like, let's think about what comes next, right? And we don't tell students that we value this in traditional classrooms because there's not necessarily good opportunities to do so. So I think one way to combat these inequities in science is to provide these alternative opportunities to demonstrate what we're valuing. But at the same time, I worry that I'm also continuing to reproduce inequity. And here's where I'm going to critique the program that I'm running. And that I, I worry that, you know, while I'm giving students this, this opportunity um, to engage in research, but, you know, this is just reproducing the idea that students need prior experience in research in order to do well in research later on, right? And so, like, how do I how do I balance that, right? Because I feel like that in turn is just reproducing some of the existing biases and assumptions we're making about our students. But at the same time, I think it's kind of a both and. I think we need to be doing both both providing the opportunities and also trying to dismantle the existing assumptions and biases we have in our systems that that currently exist. Thank you, Courtney. Stephanie, you, you said that you'd like to respond as well. I agree. Um, I think this is not an either or. Like I've had a rich um, experience or I haven't means I can or cannot succeed later. And I would say critique it. Like that's what we should be doing is asking those questions. Is this working? How do we fix it? Like I take a very engineering design approach to the kinds of work that I do um, because I find that if I don't, I get very stuck in, if I don't try something, maybe it'll be okay rather than why don't I just try something and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, I'll fix it and try something new which is not actually what I wanted to say about this question. I think, so the question about intervening into the inequitable aspects, um, I think part of it is we need to really shift the language that we're using when we're talking about um, equity. In particular, um, because I work both in the K-12 sphere, PK-12, and in the higher ed sphere, I would like to ask us to move away, and I'm not the only one, from the leaky pipeline metaphor of the rationale for why we don't have BIPOC students, why we don't have women, why we don't have the LGBTQ um, participants in science. 
And I've been influenced by an article that was in science recently that changes the framing of this metaphor from the leaky, leaky pipeline where people sort of passively move out of it because there's holes in a system that's otherwise robust to um, this, this metaphor that we have created a hostile obstacle course in science and the metaphor instead is that things have been put down to inhibit the advancement of certain populations of students, of educators, of faculty members in higher ed, and we need to remove those barriers. Like we have created a system of inequity and it is working. It is working really well, which is why we don't see numbers that we'd like, that we say we'd like to see. And part of that is because we continue to use this deficit mindset that there's something wrong with the people who are filtered out because they fall through the cracks in this pipe, right? And the pipe gets smaller, but still it's just, it's people just drip out. It's a terrible metaphor and we've been using it forever. And I think changing that language really allows us to say, we recognize this problem as the problem that it is and not it's something wrong with you, you know, you indigenous youth, you Latinx teenager. It's not the problem with them. It's not a deficit on them. And we've, we've long ascribed to this metaphor that we have a leaky pipeline and we don't, we have a hostile obstacle course. Yeah. I love what both Courtney and Stephanie said. Uh, in short, I would say that there's two approaches to kind of intervene. And I prefer one over the other. One approach is to constantly talk about the morality of these systems. I really, really think that's not my job. And I'll, I'm playing this game that I'll explain later why I haven't done my identity yet. I'll say this, I love in podcasts when I listen to them, listen to them that I like to guess the identity of the people. So I'm playing that game. Do you know my identity? by how I'm speaking, I will tell you at the end if you were right. Okay, but here's the thing. So yeah, I, I, I'm saying that there's, there's a, there is one way to, again, address inequity in systems by moral, constantly pushing on the morals of people. There's another approach that I think Courtney has brought up, and that is simply make a better system. Better, it's just better. So the argument that the system is working for some, I think is a, it kind of works, but doesn't work as well as if we had better systems that are more sustainable, more innovative, bring in more people, bring in more ideas, right? I think it's possible to design systems within the university that are alternatives, that are better. And so people just look over and say, I want to do what she's doing. I wanna do what he's doing, right? And it swallows the old one. Apparently this is a real thing that I just talked with uh, Professor Stephanie Hicks at University of Michigan. She recommended a book called A Third University and made me say, thank you. It's that, it is that. I didn't know what it was. I am not an equity expert, but it is this idea. Build the system within the system that is better. And I think Courtney, you've already done that in my classes, I've already done that, right? And now people are trying to duplicate. And now that system is starting to get swallowed up because you're getting better results. Inequitable systems never sustain themselves. They always fail eventually. 
Um, so create something better, prove it. Last point is that the, that's my job as, as a person of color, a woman of color, if you guessed that right, of African diaspora heritage. I am 6'1". I am queen. If you haven't heard it, you know it now. Okay. So um, the point is build the system and then prove it because people are only following past successes, what they thought were past successes. Most people at least are doing that. Make a better one and have it duplicated. I think that's possible if we're strategic about it. And that's gonna be my job. Everybody else fight the morality and win the hearts of people. Do it. That's it. I appreciate your service. Thank you, Shayla. And I'm I'm so thrilled you brought up the third university. I Yes, we had Kay Wayne Yang, who goes a uh, pen named La Paperson, uh, come to our class and got to have a chat when I was in grad school. And I like blew my mind and it was like one of the best days of my whole life. And one of the best pieces of advice that that they gave us during that was like, you can have your day job and also subvert the heck out of everything that you do. Right. Like it is your you know, whoever you want to bless you into this journey, like that is the goal, like go forth and do be the ghost in the machine, right? Be the one that like jacks up the cogs to make them function better. So I I really appreciate what you're saying, Shayla, about making a better system. Um, On that thread of making a better system, there is a conversation in education and prison industrial complex about abolitionism, right? Like what is that were we to just abandon the system altogether? And do we make a new system? Do we make a better system? Do we go a totally different direction? So I I would be curious if folks have any ideas about that. I'll just say as an engineer, there's something called transfer function. Ooh, tell me. So it defines a system and it's a relationship between output and input, right? So some people adjust, adjust outputs and then all the inputs are coming in and all they do is adjust outputs. And then there's some people that adjust inputs and all they do is adjust inputs. But the box in the middle is the system. That is a transfer function and people are terrified of changing the box. That's not what engineers do. We mess with the box. So answers to all social answers is a transfer function. I just taught Laplace transforms in my class. Um, Mess with the box. I don't care what social issue it is, mess with it. It's going to adjust your outputs. Some people that are gaining a lot of access, guess what? Your output's going to get adjusted because the box is messed up. And a lot of people that are marginalized, you're going to get adjusted because the box, you see what I mean? Fix the box. That's it. Done. All problems in the world solved. <laughs> Clearly, you should be in charge. The end. Thank you. I, I do think, and Shayla should be in charge, and I think I might join her as a, I'm only six foot. So, I mean, you can't tell because I'm sitting down but I wear high heels all the time. So yes, tall women unite. That is yep. a significant um, identity. It's a huge part of my identity. And I also it find is. it is a being, being a, a woman of size um, means that I have um, certain privileges. That's right. That I did not earn That's around right. walking in a room and nobody ever thinks, is that a student? That nobody, ever, right. That's I'm never mistaken. <laughs> Right. And so I have some, I have that, I have that going for me. Um, That's a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is. (laughs) Um, I think that there's another piece to this, which is, and I completely agree with adjusting the box um, 
one of the one of the books that I that I read a long time ago and really resonated is about tempered radicals and tempered the idea of tempered radicalism and um highly recommend that that like we are as tempered radicals sort of it's it has to do the tempered part has to do with tempered glass that's heated and then is under different pressures both internally and externally and that's what makes it able to be really strong under under heat in any case um in addition to messing with the box one of my constant refrains is how can we build empathy here right how can we do that? And so when it comes to changing systems, part of that is not being someone who assumes that I know what the solution is until I've had a talk with the people that the solution, the proc, the, the box, the outputs, being talking to people who that, that's going to impact, right? Because I don't know. And I I want to believe I am well-intended, but I and I usually am well-intended but I also need to understand and listen with empathy to the people whose, whose lives are going to be changed by my messing with the system. So, so I think that it, for me, and this is where the humanness comes in to the, the science, right? That I'm, I'm hesitant to make decisions until I've had that discussion um, and really listen to, to the people who need who need to have their voices amplified. Thank you. Courtney, did you have something you wanted to share? Um, so unfortunately I am not part of the six foot club. I won't reveal how tall I am. So listeners can just be left guessing, but you'll, you'll know that I'm not over six feet tall. So perhaps my voice will give it away, who knows. But when, think, when it comes to thinking about the box, right? And, and messing with the box, I appreciate what both Shayla and Stephanie have said about different ways of messing with the box and, and whatnot. And, you know, I guess in my work, working with different departments and whatnot on this sort of concept of, do we amend the existing system or do we create an entirely new one? I, I've found that in working with different groups, it's really hard to abolish it and make a completely new one. And but I think that it could be so transformative if we were to do that, or at least the thought exercise of that a lot more often. And I find myself having a really hard time, you know, thinking beyond the existing box, right? And so working with, with groups, we do, um, I'm gonna give a shout out to one of the other projects I'm on, the Departmental Action Team Project. And in that model, we, tend to do a visioning activity with teams where we imagine what would the ideal look like for you, right? And more often than not, it's it's hard for folks who are engaging in that activity to think beyond the existing barriers. And when we say like, let's imagine what this could look like, they're like, well, that's not possible. Like we can't do this because of this and we can't, do, but it's like, but, but stop, like let's eliminate that entire box, right? Like let's just not have a box. And I don't know, like let's have some other construct completely and where there, these barriers don't exist because then we can be more creative with what this potential new situation looks like. And then we can backtrack and figure out how to get there, right? But just, it's, it's really, really hard for us to get out of our own, our own box because we've been operating it, like within it for so long. 
So I, I love the idea of like abolishing the box, but I also want to acknowledge how how challenging it is because we don't do it very often. We don't we don't try that out very often. Um, and I understand that there are many practical realities for reasons why we can't do that, right? But but still, I think it's like the, having the imagination of a child, right? They're not limited by anything. When you have the when you're a child, you are imagining everything in so many different ways but when we when we become adults we sometimes lose that that ability to imagine what it could be like um, because we've been operating within the box for so long so yeah i'm all about changing the box removing the box flattening that box um, whatever whatever it takes thank you shayla i know you had something else that you wanted to share about research I, I love this conversation um, so much because I struggle with this and I purposely trying to find the, the input to change how I think about research directions on purpose. So this is recently happening. I'll give a couple points real quick. One, I put my graduate student in something called the i program. And the i program is innovation-based and it's like end user. We are just starting on this new journey of using bacteria to do stuff, which sounds insane, but it's really, really early. And so the thought was, listen, grad student, me and you, we're going to act like we're both students. We're going to think 20 years ahead right now before we have the stuff, right? Before, like right before our proof of concept. What does that do to your brain when you are purposely putting your risk and all that stuff out there? and exploring the space of potential before, before you have the device. And I'm saying this is a better thing. I think it's a better system because her candidacy exam was fire. I mean, they had comments about what she presented about in the context that I've never heard in the candidacy exam, precisely because you're exploring this bigger space that your context of research is in. And so that's one example of like, Get, get out of the basic process on purpose. The other example is I talk to, when I can, social uh, STS professors on a decently regular basis. I just wrote a proposal with one and it completely changed my perception of that same technology because it's about implementing in an actual place with actual people right now before we get the full lab proof of concept happening, right? Because so it's like an extension beyond ourselves into like the social world on purpose so that we can create new questions, new scientific questions from a completely different perspective of actually being embedded in a community. I think that's valuable, really, really valuable because I get more questions than I normally would. More questions means more proposal writing. <laughs> more questions means more collaboration. And that only happens in my opinion from crazy ideas that have big impact, not the small ones, big problems, forget it. I am going very big all the time and it tends to bring people in and it tends to make my students go out and it tends to give me new questions. And I think there's something to going out first and then coming back, going out and coming back versus just start starting on the little piece and then building. I think it's just a different approach, a different kind of system. And so far it's been kind of interesting to see those results. This is making me think about um, Octavia's Brood. Have any of y'all come across that? It's a collection of short 
um, speculative fiction, science fiction stories um, curated by Adrienne Marie Brown, um, who's she's super rad, really incredible systems thinker. Um, and then Walida Imarisha is the other editor. And what I hear you all talking about is how do we destroy the box, melt the box, make a bigger box, make a smaller box, make a circle or a star um, in the image of folks who we want to serve or who can be served um, or in the image of a, something we haven't even figured out yet, right? When I talk about this idea of since time immemorial with young people, I tell them to close their eyes and think about, can you think of a time that you can't remember, <laughs> right? To like kind of click a switch for them that's like, there is a time that we can't remember, right? And this sort of um, story about about since time, since time immemorial, but I share the speculative fiction and the sci-fi because I think that that's a place where authors and thinkers and writers have started to do exactly what you all are talking about. And I love, love to see and to hear the validation from you all as authorities and professors and folks who in my opinion, are experts um, in your field who have the opportunity to, who are holding students to this process and guiding them and giving them the opportunity to see what can be possible. And that imagination, that practice, like you said, Courtney, of just thinking about what could be, and Shayla, what you're saying of like seeing and feeling like wow, this is so incredible. I'm so stoked that my, my doctoral candidate student is getting so much excellent support and feedback in a way that, that you haven't seen before because we've given these folks an opportunity to think imaginatively and to see and envision a future that, that they want to see for themselves. Uh, shout out to Octavia Butler, who started a little bit on this journey sci-fi. Shout out to N.K. Jemison, which I'm just now starting because I'm late to the, to the train. I know, I know. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> I guess some shout out to George Saunders, who was, I think, an electrical engineer. So I like the process of how he writes uh, short stories. Fascinating stuff. Reading is fundamental. Absolutely. It's another way for me to make the box, you know, whatever it is, to find those uh, interdisciplinary connections that students, um, those inroads, kind of like Stephanie was talking about earlier, can see the value and can imagine just incredible, incredible stuff that we that we can't even think of right now. So, so with that, I think that you all have really captured and started to have the conversation about what would it look like if equity were a guiding principle in science. And you all have spoken about what you're already doing to bring equity into your work. So I think we'll, we'll end on that question of what would it look like if equity were a guiding principle in science in your field? This would actually open up a whole new world of questions to answer and explore uh, because inequitable science um, or when it is practiced, when it is, uh, when there are inequitable conditions in science, we're naturally excluding people, we're excluding different topics of research, we're excluding methods. And if we were to truly practice equity in science, all of those things that we were previously, previously excluding would then become things that we should be exploring and doing and people who should be invited into the space and new methods um, should be practiced. And you know, I think that taking an equitable approach means we need to then interrogate the assumptions we're making in 
as we're practicing science um, and, and make fewer generalizations because we're trying to be more inclusive, because we're trying to take make equitable conditions in science and practice equitable science, right? It's both about the conditions and the practice of science. Um, and so I think that in doing so, that that just opens up a whole new world of possibilities for things to explore. And as, as, as a scientist myself, that just seems exciting to me, right? To have even more opportunities to engage in science and to think about how to generate new knowledge and apply it to, to the world. You know, I think about this a lot because I don't, again, I don't think of equity as, as, a, as a place we, as an achieve, something we can actually achieve. It's something we're continually reevaluating and thinking about. Um, but if it's something we truly value, and I hope that it is, um, I hope that it can be a guiding principle. I think what, it, what changes in my mind is our understanding of what mathematics is and how mathematics is used. Um, so for example, on, on, a, on a like third grade level, instead of asking a student, do they know their multiplication tables? We're asking students to tell us about, and this, this is an example from, um, from a report on, on math modeling as a way to leverage equity or as, to be levered for equity. Instead of asking, you know, do you know your multiplication tables, which feels devoid of meaning um, for the student, we're instead asking students questions like, you're having a family celebration. What are you celebrating? Who comes? And how much food do you think you need? What food do you eat at this celebration? And so you're asking them questions of culture and community and so at the same time, you're honoring the communities that they come from, and you're honoring them as individuals, right? In a classroom full of individuals, full of people of different backgrounds and cultures and things of import. And I think we're not doing a great job of that yet, but I tend to have a very growth mindset towards that as well. I'm, I'm hopeful, right? There, I feel like there's equity issues in many different ways um, in terms of there's gender equity that needs to be discussed and racial equity, which is much harder for us to discuss. And there's disability equity. And so there's, there's lots of social identities that need to be addressed when we're centering equity, which is a big ask. But I think if we're asking students to engage in science and engage in STEM in general and mathematics in particular, then what it looks like if equity is a guiding principle is that those students can show up as the whole people that we are, they are, and we honor that continually through their education. Thank you, Stephanie. Shayla? The future. I mean... I just think a lot about uh, who's not here. What knowledge do I not have right now um, because they're not here? What um, technology is not here right now because they weren't uh, given the access or opportunities? We are still running our cars on fire. Do you know how many things we run on fire? This really, really bothers me. I'm sorry. We use... <laughs> 
We, I mean, we have something as amazing as, as nuclear energy and we're still heating water. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? So, I mean, there, there, we have the ideas that are based on previous ideas. And that has happened that brought us this far. It's brought us a lot. But what happens if we open that up completely? I think we'd be much farther ahead. We'd get there faster. We'd have more people. We'd see more representation. Um, we'd see the infiltration in, in different places and actually reap benefits from that infiltration. It is not a, um, a charity or a moral thing for me. It is a better thing. It is better society for me. It's, it's, it's not like, oh, I hope you'd be our better person, like right at this point. It's literally, I hope that you can bring better ideas to the table and bring more people to the table so we can get this done because we don't have enough right now. Last point is that I went to an NSF meeting and there was a very, very high level NSF manager that said something that I was like, he was actually pretty, pretty, pretty fiery upset and I was happy about it because the last slide was said, I think he used a, a not so great word, uh, like a little cuss word, that's fine, because I was here for it. He said, we need to democratize engineering. We don't have enough people. We need to figure out how to get these people in here so we could solve problems, whoever these people are. Um, and I was really happy to hear that there's a need, there's a disconnect between all of our problems and, and how many people are actually prepared to solve them? And we got to do this, like fast. And I think if we think about big problems and we bring it into education and we think about it in our research, we could begin to close that gap. It looks like there's a need to do that. Uh, let's just push forward. Thank you, Shayla. I am humbled and honored to have shared time and space with you all today. This has been a really incredible conversation. I'm walking away with new questions, book recommendations. <laughs> I, I feel hopeful in a way that I haven't in two and a half years, <laughs> if we're being really honest. So thank you. Thank you all for your emotional, your um, intellectual energy. I asked students in the renewable energy course I taught, if you could design ener any energy system, any way to harness energy, what would you want to do? And one kid suggested, this is not a great one, uh, dropping cats off of the building and that when they landed, right, harnessing the kinetic energy of their, of their plunge. Uh, one kid, like many students, middle school students, suggested cow farts, right? This is something we talk lots about. Um, but by far my favorite was a student who was like, Black Panther, duh. Like, they're already harnessing all of this kinetic energy of their movement. And I just was like, it, it was a, such an incredible moment to watch a kid make that connection. And also to be like, yep, this already happened. Good work. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> so that imaginary it's it's present and i i just feel so energized by y'all in this conversation so thank you i want to thank our guests today for joining in and the equity labs production team we hope you will join us for our next episode equity is resistance where we talk about equity issues in athletics and entertainment equity work is difficult work that is worth doing it is done in community and it is a responsibility we all carry